Hey guys, welcome to Breakdown Beta. Thank you so much for volunteering to check out some new content form. So just a couple seconds on what I'm doing here. I wrote this in the email, but just to rehash. Effectively, uh, the first important thing to note is that the format of the breakdown is not changing. I'm not thinking about switching it up. I really like the balance of shows that I do and kind of do my little soliloquies on uh, as opposed to interviews. This is about exploring what type of content would be valuable for people either in the context of some uh, uh, premium option where people who just wanted more content could get it or as part of some community engagement content, right? Stuff that is specifically meant to provoke different types of interaction between people. So I, it's really open-ended. I just know that podcasting is still so new in terms of its relative penetration in the population, in terms of its business model, in terms of everything about how it works and how podcasters interact with their audience. So I want to, rather than just guess at things, actually try things out. So that is the spirit of this and I appreciate you taking the time to follow along with this experiment. Now, uh, basically what I'm going to be doing is each week I'm going to be testing kind of a different mode throughout June. So this week is curation week where I look at a few different topics uh, in both written and audio form as opposed to going a little bit deeper dive, still short form, on uh, one topic which is what next week will be about. So this is curation week, next week will be the one thought week. Week three will be really about discussion and social content. So peeling back layers or expanding upon on what people have been tweeting and discussing on Twitter. And I have some ideas about how to get other people who have put out really popular, interesting tweets to expand upon them in ways that I think could be valuable. Week four, I'm going to leave totally open as a hybrid for all of these different formats to try to do a bunch of different experiments and bring them together. And so that's kind of the idea. And each week at the end of the week, I'll send out a little survey, ask you guys what you thought. If for any reason there's a week that you haven't had a chance to catch up, don't stress about it. This is completely voluntary and I appreciate you spending some time with it. So with that said, let's dive into the first ever uh, breakdown beta test. All right, so topic one, the stock market disconnect. Uh, this is pretty clear for anyone who's been following along. We are now in night six, I think. Maybe this might be night seven of uh, wide-scale protests around the killing, the murder of George Floyd, and moreover, the just desperate inequality that people feel, the uh, structural racism that people live in and experience every day, the institutional unfairness that is a part of uh, modern American life, right? There's a huge convergence of different things that are going into this. And this is to say nothing of the just frustration of being cooped up, even if you agree with the idea of closing down the economy to save lives from a new novel virus. Uh, there's a there's a pent up anger and frustration and a real fear that comes with the economic dislocation that is surely going to be a part of this. Stock markets don't seem to care. After a very initial, uh, you know, tip down before the Fed came in and did what the Fed always does, which says they have inf infinite cash and unlimited resources, uh, the markets have just been continuing to grow. Uh, markets opened in the green today and stayed there, and there was a lot of commentary about this. So Jim Rickards wrote, American cities are burning, there's a lethal pandemic, and we're in a new Great Depression. Of course the stock market is up. Why do we persist in calling it a market? S&P 500 is really the S&P 6. Stocks are traded by robots and financed by $5 trillion of printed money at 0% interest. Danielle DiMartino Booth, who was on the show a couple weeks ago, said, nothing moves the needle when the market has no conscience. Uh, and she was retweeting someone who wrote, my Twitter feed, you're a fascist, you're a snowflake, the chart here looks really good. 
Sven Hendricks from Northman Trader said, you'd think that after having added 15 trillion in debt and 6.5 trillion to the Fed's balance sheet in the past 11 years, we'd have a booming economy and a glowing middle class with poverty vastly reduced. Oh, we don't? So what has all this spending actually gotten us? Now, this is compared to the real lived economic experience. Uh, You have uh, an example of stores including Target, CVS, Apple, and Walmart all closing stores uh, that had reopened now for safety reasons. So these are places that were opened again after the pandemic that have now closed. And this sort of twin hit, I think people are still underestimating. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan said this effectively in a tweet today. He said, I think a lot of people burning things in the middle of a dual pandemic and depression think it's all going to spring back up suddenly after it's done. But insurance may not pay for it. Many of these venues may not ever get rebuilt. Many of these cities will see people leave. People talked about the retail apocalypse before as a semi-humorous overstatement, but now there is no humor and no overstatement. Pandemic and riots mean many physical businesses will just go permanently digital rather than rebuild. So there is uh, effectively here a, a disconnect, a dislocation between the market and the economy, and this is nothing new. Uh, you've heard, if you've listened to the podcast, Ben Hunt and other people like him talk about how the stock market has become a political scorecard and is almost entirely divorced from uh, from from actual earnings potential or whatever argument that value investors would like to make. But this period has really reinforced that the only factor that matters in number go up in the U.S. stock markets is the willingness of the Fed to backstop the economy and to make sure that asset prices rise at any cost. Uh, in fact, I would argue that maybe the only part of the stock market that is seeing a real clear coherence today between uh, the real economy as it's lived and the the markets themselves are that gun stocks have surged far, far past the broader market. They are this year's most winning stocks in some ways or in some contexts. And uh, unfortunately, I think that makes sense too. Um, I tweeted out last night that uh, this has a really been a really bad weekend for uh, the First Amendment and a really good weekend for the Second Amendment. Um, Maybe we'll talk about that more, uh, but that's a little bit deeper than I want to get tonight. So that's the first topic, uh, stock market disconnect, a lot feelings going on around that and uh, a lot of discussion to be had. But let's talk about our second topic, which is China's economy. And uh, this is uh, something that is part of the justification for the resilience of the stock market is that, hey, look, China's gone through it longer than us and is coming around on the other side and the manufacturing index is up and everything is getting better. But an article in Wall Street Journal today says China's economy is worse than it looks. Apparent recovery from coronavirus shutdowns is allowing China to project strength, but it isn't quite what it seems. The first part of that context is unemployment. It says that only 6% of residents were out of work in April compared to 15% in the U.S. But China's measure doesn't include migrant workers who leave cities during downturns. So uh, other estimates suggest that it was likely closer to 16% in April. And some others say that it's up to 11 to 20% of non-farm workers. So one dislocation, one difference is uh, the, the difference between the actual reported unemployment numbers and the the real likely unemployment numbers. 
a second part of the same study that suggested that that aspect of the economy wasn't doing as well has suggested that uh, China's monetary policy needs to get even looser, right? They need to get more aggressive about playing the same game that the Federal Reserve is playing and, and reduce rates uh, even further when it comes to the interbank lending rate. So that's another part of the story. The last part of the story has to do with it doesn't matter if you have a recovering manufacturing index if there's no buyer for the recovery. So uh, these things together mean that China's economy that we're looking to as hopefully emblematic of what it can be on the other side of this crisis is not nearly as good a signal as we'd like. Third topic for tonight, and I'm really only just going to touch on this one because I want to come back to it, but the implications from a surveillance perspective on the idea of declaring Antifa a terrorist organization. Um, I don't even close to want to get into one the morality, the reality of Antifa as an organization. Two, I also don't want to touch the uh, political capital and the political utility of this sort of labeling. That's not what I'm interested in right now, although there's a lot more to be said about that. What I am interested in is a point that Brett Weinstein makes today in a tweet where he says, I don't think people understand the significance of the president declaring Antifa a terrorist organization. The Patriot Act and provisions of the NDAA of 2012 make this frightening. Because Antifa is informal, it puts all protesters in danger, like declaring them uncitizens. There is a reason that domestic organizations aren't classified as terrorist organizations in the same way. The mandate that the government has to pursue actions against international terrorist organizations fundamentally compromises pretty essential parts of the U.S. experience, the U.S. law, namely the First Amendment. We are so easily and so excited about this designation. It's Trump's most liked tweet in a very long time, by a factor of about four. It got 800,000 people liked his tweet where he said he was going to declare Antifa a terrorist organization. And uh, people want, they love that law and order idea. But the reality is what they're signing up for is a massively expanded warrant on the government's ability to, uh, warrantless rather, their government's ability to go get information about its citizens. Anyone who's ever been in a Facebook chat with someone who who they determine is part of Antifa, all of a sudden you're flagged, you're tracked, and you've lost rights. Um, and I think it's a little ironic that there's a, such been a, such a 180 shift in this context of people who were just weeks ago talking about how they didn't want things like contact tracing uh, because they objected to people's rights, they didn't want to have their freedoms impinged by staying at home, who are now rooting for the designation of a terrorist organization, which is going to totally transform the ability of the government to uh, wield power as it relates to private citizens. There's uh, plenty of hypocrisy on the other side of this too, so don't get me wrong, uh, but I think that people are, to Brett Weinstein's point, radically, radically underestimating the surveillance implications of this declaration. Lastly, let's talk Bitcoin real fast. Two interesting notes. The first is that Glassnode pointed out that 60% of the Bitcoin supply hasn't moved in over a year, which means obviously increased investor hodling behavior. Um, importantly, they point out that the last time we saw these levels was right in advance of the Bitcoin bull market of 2017. And, I, you know, it's hard to interpret things like this, but I will say that 
it feels like we are in the most powerful narrative moment for Bitcoin in perhaps its life. And so it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing this interest. Uh, I mean, just as I'm recording, just as I started recording, I'd planned this out an hour or two ago, we have just absolutely smashed past 10,000, up to 10,118 as I record this at 730. Um, And I have to say, it's the in some ways, it's the the least excited I've ever been. And, you know, I think we get a little bit dangerous when we ascribe too much of uh, contemporary events and immediate movements to price action, um, especially because I think it's as mo- as likely that people who have large holdings and are interested in a move one way or another take advantage of news cycles for all of us chuckleheads to talk about the narrative. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, we're getting a taste of what it feels like when Bitcoin goes up uh, because it's insurance against a world that's falling apart. And I guess it's gratifying, but it also is uh, is reinforcing of the fact that uh, it's crazy out there. So anyways, that is uh, that is first episode of beta. Uh, let me know what you think. Like I said, I'll survey you at the end of the week, but uh, feel free to always ping me. DM me, email me um, about what you liked or didn't like about this, uh, how long it was or wasn't, what the right format was, which topics were interesting, anything at all. Um, All right, guys, that's it for now. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.